Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season seven, episode seven, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. This is the first time we've done this, but today we'll be discussing two films. The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Yes! Um, the original is from 1976, and the remake meta-sequel is from 2014. The original was directed by Charles B. Pierce and written by Earl E. Smith. The sequel was directed by Alfonso gomez Rejon and written by Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch them both. Still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So we're going to get more into this later, but these films are actually based on true events that happened in Texarkana. Now, for those of you who don't know, Texarkana is a city in Bowie County, Texas, United States, located in the Arc-La-Tex region. Arc-La-Tex is a U.S. socioeconomic region where the three southern states of Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas meet. In this case, Texarkana is technically in Texas, but it is very close to the border of Arkansas. So Charles B. Pierce, who was a local to Arkansas, filmed the town in the summer of 1976 in Arkansas and finished it in about four weeks. Around 20 Texarkana locals starred in the film along with several extras. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the film's poster art was painted with acrylic by a graphic illustrator named Ralph McQuarrie. McQuarrie would actually become widely known just a year later after his concept art was used to help fund George Lucas's Star Wars films. Whoa, that's awesome. Yeah, and many of his designs are still used today, like in the sequels and I think even the prequels as well. So according to Brian Albright, quote, the advertising department placed the controversial phrase, quote, In 1946, this man killed five people. Today, he still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas, which is all wrong. But on the poster, it said this. (laughs) After Texarkana city officials threatened to sue, Pierce tried having the statement removed. The last part of the phrase was censored or removed in advertisements, but it still remained on the posters. The film premiered in the U.S. on Christmas Eve in 1976 and was played at drive-in movie theaters up until the end of 1977, and then it made its television debut the next year in 1978. The film received mixed to negative reviews upon its release, with critics calling the film's comedy flat and the horror scenes sickening, which the comedy is very bad in that film, so I definitely see where they're coming from there yes yes indeed so out of place um so the film uh, has done better in modern times and was even referenced in 1990s 
in the 1996 meta horror film Scream. Now it's considered a cult classic, and Scott Weinberg from FearNet gave it a positive review, saying, quote, The film delivers some legitimately effective atmosphere, several cool character actors doing fine work, and a handful of sincerely creepy moments, unquote. So time goes on, and in 2012, producer Jason Blum of Blumhouse was approached by Ryan Murphy, who was the creator and producer of the TV show American Horror Story, and Ryan wanted to remake the film. And this remake would actually be more of a meta-sequel to the original film, focusing on the impact the real story and the OG film has had on the Texarkana community, and maybe even the whole country, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Much like the first film, this one only took a few weeks to shoot, beginning in mid-May of 2014 and ending in mid-June. The film premiered in September of 2014 at Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas, and then it was released in theaters on October 14, 2014. The film received mostly mixed reviews, with Fangoria magazine saying that, quote, the plot somewhat falls apart in the third act, but despite (laughs) this disappointing final blow, the town that dreaded sundown is still well worth a visit, unquote. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plots for these films? Yeah, I sure will. Eight months after the end of World War II, the town of Texarkana is plagued by mysterious murders on Lover's Lane committed by a masked phantom who kills teens under the cover of darkness. The town, now on high alert, sells out of locks, guns, and other safety precautions, fearing that the phantom could be anyone. As the cases become more serious, a Texas ranger by the name of Morales is called in to help Ramsey, the local sheriff, track down the killer. He makes it clear that he doesn't want any media involved, as rumors could hurt their effort to find the masked killer. They hatch a plan to set up decoy cops on the edge of town dressed as lovers in a parked car in an attempt to catch the killer during the high school's prom night. However, the Phantom takes two more victims after a slew of other killings. Exhausting their options, the men meet with a psychiatrist named Dr. Kress, who explains that the killer is likely a sadist between the ages of 35 and 40, highly intelligent, who has a very strong sex drive, and he also confesses that he will likely never be caught. He mentions also that he could be literally anyone in the community, and as he explains this, we see the shoes of a man who we assume is the Phantom, who had been listening to the entire conversation. Then, a report that an armed man is at a local gas station sparks a pursuit between the suspect and the police. After being apprehended, the man confesses to being the Phantom, but Morales doesn't buy it, and the man admits, in the end, that he is not the Phantom. Two more people are attacked, and the town is once again in an uproar. Morales and Ramsey continue their search, and as they investigate a sandpit for clues after finding a car that matched the description from witnesses in the earlier murders, they come across the phantom and shoot him, but he escapes into the nearby woods and is never caught by the men. As the film closes, we learn that the town that dreaded sundown premiered during Christmas, and the shoes of the phantom are again seen standing in line for the film. And we know that the Phantom is still out there. Dun, dun, dun. So for the sequel, on Halloween 2013, the film is showed at a local Texarkana drive-in as the town's citizens gather to indulge in the urban legend that haunted the town years prior. 
Jamie and her date, Corey, decide to leave the movie and park on Lover's Lane, discussing their plans after graduation, and when they start to make out, they're attacked by a masked killer mimicking the original Phantom. Corey is stabbed as Jamie is ordered to get out of the car and forced to turn away as the killer murders Corey. She escapes the attack, running through the woods, but Corey is not so lucky. A funeral service is held for him, and Jamie begins to help the police track down clues as to who the Phantom could be this time, and she is offered protection and 24-hour surveillance by a local officer named Foster, who stands guard outside of Jamie's house where her grandmother also resides. She and one of her classmates named Nick begin researching the old case, along with Texas Ranger Lone Wolf Morales. Jamie receives a mysterious phone call from Corey's phone, and the person on the other line says that he's going to keep killing until they, quote-unquote, remember. Jamie and Nick attend a vigil for the attacker's other victims, a soldier and his fiancée, that were murdered at a local motel, but the vigil is interrupted by a suicidal local teen dressed as the Phantom. The police think they've got the killer, but as he is apprehended, two more teens in the local band are killed at a junkyard in the same style of the trombone murders from the original film. Jamie had received a mysterious email earlier in the film from an unknown sender in regards to the murders, and it's discovered that the email had been sent to her by the local pastor, who'd done it in an attempt to scare people into going back to church. Seeking more answers, Jamie and Nick visit a local man who is the son of Charles B. Pierce, the man who created the original Town That Dreaded Sundown. He is obsessed with the case and the film, and he tells the teens that the Phantom had a sixth victim that they had forgotten, a man named McCready, who was believed to have been stabbed and left for dead by the Phantom. His pregnant wife, Mary, condemned the local authorities for not discovering who the killer of her husband was. He believes that the new Phantom is McCready's grandson and is seeking recognition for the murder of his grandfather. The teens leave with more questions than answers, and when Jamie receives an acceptance letter from a college in California, her grandmother decides that they'd both leave and stay with Jamie's uncle to keep her safe and get them away from the troubles plaguing their town. Jamie and Nick have sex, and Nick is killed after leaving her house for the night. Jamie prepares to leave the next morning, but she is stopped in her tracks when her grandmother is shot at the gas station on their way out of town by an unknown assailant. Jamie tries to flee, but she is chased until she gets to the old Union Station, where she discovers Nick's body. She's shot with an arrow and confronted by two masked killers dressed as the Phantom. They reveal themselves to be Corey and Officer Foster. Corey tells Jamie that he didn't want to be a nobody, and by bringing the Phantom back, he would be remembered differently than everyone else who leaves and goes to college and comes back to their hometown. Corey is then shot by Officer Foster, who tells Jamie that he plans on blaming the murders on her and Corey, and that he is the grandson of McCready, and that the townspeople would move on because they don't want to remember the Phantom anymore. Jamie shoots Foster and reports the entire thing to the police, but his body is never found. Jamie goes on to college in California, but the shadow of the Phantom is seen stalking her closely behind. Abby, thank you so much for that lovely plot summary. You are welcome. Okay, so let's talk about the Bechdel test. Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't pass in the 1976 version. However, it passes a few times in the 2014 version thanks to the meaningful conversations that Jamie and her grandmother Lillian have about the town and college. So, Nancy's dream team test. This is a little bit harder to pass. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No for both. 
Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? Again, no for both. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No for both. And were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? In the 1976 version, there isn't. But in the 2014 version, yes, there are. Okay, so let's get into our discussion. Um, like Abby mentioned earlier, this episode is going to be a little different, obviously, because we are talking about two films here rather than just one. And as we get through this discussion, I think you'll see why we're doing it this way, because I believe personally it's almost impossible to talk about one film without mentioning the other one. They work together so well. Uh, they're truly a special double feature, really. And uh, so, yeah, let's start with the history of Texarkana and the true crime that inspired these films. So according to April Bennett, quote, Texarkana was actually very diverse, with a massive wave of immigrants during the 1920s leading to a mixture of Irish, Italian, German, Jewish, Greek, French, and a sizable African-American population. Wow. With that, many different ethnic groups in a smaller southern town caused an inevitable increase in crime as a result of different cultures clashing. Ugh. During the 1940s, there was also a significant increase in travelers coming through Texarkana since four railways offered passenger service and two airlines had a couple of flights a day each. The rise in public transportation resulted in population growth and a subsequent increase in crime. World War II also contributed heavily to the sudden skyrocketing population of Texarkana. People from all over the country flocked to the town following the opening of the Red River Ordnance Depot and Lone Star Army Ammunition Plant. Although the population doubled and the economy was thriving, crime was also on the rise. However, the town was no stranger to violence. Texarkana had a string of murders take place years prior, which gave it a Wild West sort of reputation. Aside from murder, Texarkana was also regularly the site of high-speed chases with police in pursuit of traffickers running liquor from Louisiana to Oklahoma, as well as shootouts, holdups, and knife fights. So, wow! Sounds yes. like a party! <laughs> a true southern town. <laughs> <laughs> So, in the wake of the Phantom's first attack, like the sheriff, many passed this off as one of the many one-time occurrences, unquote. Hmm. So, yeah. Everyone was like, well, this day in a life in Texarkana, people just dying. So, oh, my God, dude. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, here's a little bit about the true crime. According to an article written by Gregory Burkart, quote, the newspapers called him the Phantom Killer and referred to his crimes as the Tex Arcana Moonlight Murders. News of the bizarre and horrific killings transfixed an entire nation on the small town of Texarkana, Texas, in early 1946, and the case remains one of the most notorious unsolved crimes in U.S. history. Yes, there's also a really good documentary called Urban Legends, and um, some of our listeners might be familiar with it. It's created by the same guy who made Cropsey, and they talk about the Texarkana murders, and apparently they're called the Moonlight Murders because they coincided with the full moons. And they talk about that in the 1976 version of the film, like Ramsey, the sheriff, concludes that the murders happen on a cycle of like 21 days. 
that makes sense why like the psychiatrist the doctor that they talked to is like saying that it's all very sexually motivated to like like almost like like he gets his power from the moon yes <gasps> oh creepy, right? that adds that just added ev- like a hundred things to it that's amazing oh my god i know oh okay so this is when it gets a little bit more serious. We're going to talk about the victims here. The first victims were Jimmy Hollis and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, who were at the local lover's lane when Hollis was severely beaten and Larry was sexually assaulted by the masked attacker. The attacker was wearing a white cloth bag with eye holes cut out. Ooh. And the lovers were left alive uh, and they just thought it was like a robbery that went wrong, basically. And that was in February of 1946. The second attack happened a month later, only this time the victims weren't so lucky. Richard Griffin and his girlfriend Polly Ann Moore were also at Lover's Lane when they were shot and killed execution style. And due to an error, it is unknown if Polly Ann Moore was sexually assaulted like Larry was. Another month went by and two more victims were found killed. One of the victims was a saxophone player named Betty Jo Booker, who was getting a ride home from the other victim, her friend, Paul Martin. Martin's body was found on the side of the road and it was discovered that he had been shot in the head multiple times. Booker's body was found hours later, almost two miles away from Martin's body, and she was sexually assaulted. Oh my God. In May, the next month, sisters Virgil and Katie Starks were having a quiet evening at home when they were both shot in the head by an intruder. Virgil was shot first in the back of the head when the bullets came through the shattered and shattered a glass window in their home. Katie tried to call 911, but she too was shot in the head, twice. And the killer came into the house and miraculously, Katie was still alive. So she got out and ran out of her house to a neighbor's house. Unfortunately, Katie never saw her killer because all of the blood got in her eyes from her gunshot wound. God, that's insane. Yes, but she did survive. And then the attack suddenly stopped. It's just amazing. Like June came around and nothing happened. So... The crime is to this day unsolved, and I think it's kind of amazing that this crime doesn't get as much attention as the Zodiac Killer murders, because those killings didn't start until the fall of 1968. But both are, I think, extremely similar. Like, from my very limited knowledge of true crime, serial killings weren't really talked about until like the 70s, am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this series of killings would have been like not normal at all like this would have been like a huge phenomenon at the time and I think that's why Charles B. Pierce's film came out in the 70s I think he felt like that was a good time for it to come out like serial killers were at their peak at that point unfortunately also I don't think there's any proof that these killings were all done by the same person there is a similar M.O., but the sisters are probably where the M.O. breaks off a little. Like, it's not a man and a woman in a car. It's two women who are just sitting at home. Right. And I think that's one of the more frustrating parts of this case. Uh, but it's also what makes the case fascinating, too. Well, and I think that it's sort of, and I'm not trying to sound insensitive by any means, but I think that it's sort of weird that so many people were up in arms about this film because it it shed a light on what happened kind of like obviously it takes some artistic liberties and that kind of thing 
But it's almost as if the residents of Texarkana wanted to keep this like a secret in a way. Like it's such a mysterious and strange conundrum. I just feel like because of this film, it kind of brought these murders to light a little bit more and it got people talking about it. There was such a controversy surrounding it that we'll talk about later on. But man, oh man. Yeah. And I to go back to... Uh, not really knowing if these were all done by the same person. Like, the first couple saw a man with a mask with eye holes cut out of it. Mm -hmm. They were the only ones who saw him. And that's the other thing, too, where it's like the film shows that it's the same killer because it's the guy with a mask and whatever. But it's definitely, like, when you look at the, the facts here, only two people saw this person out of the five people who were killed so yeah I don't know like this whole case is is quite fascinating and there are a few books um about it plus of course urban legends the documentary um we'll I'll link everything in the show notes because like I said like I don't feel like this case gets enough recognition yeah recognition exactly yeah let's kind of go back to what you were saying about people like not really like accepting this film when it first came out um obviously that has changed a lot in Texarkana (laughs) okay so this is where things get a little bit more interesting because not long after the release of Pierce's film one of the victim's brothers tried to sue Pierce for mentioning his sister in the film even though her name was changed and it had been like I think 20 years or so since the murders and this was one of the major reasons why Pierce's film was looked down upon by the town and the country when it was first released was because he took kind of like artistic liberties. Yeah. And according to Michael Newton, quote, that same year on March 15th, 1978, Gerald, I think his last name is Gedramas. Okay. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. Um, but he was a teenager and he shot and killed his high school friend, James Grunstra. And in court, Gedramas stated that he thought of this plan to be like an outlaw, like Jesse James. And he was also inspired by uh, by the town that treaded sundown. Like he wanted to kill like the killer in that film. So not only were family members upset with how their loved ones were portrayed, but there's this kid who was inspired to commit a murder because of the film. Oh my gosh. It goes way back. It goes all the way to the top. It's yeah, like that. To quote my favorite murder, which we'll talk about soon. Yes. So time passed and suddenly it was announced in 2003 in the Texarkana Gazette that every year near Halloween, the tiny town would show Charles B. Pierce's original film, Drive-In Style, at the Spring Lake Park as part of a like Movies in the Park festival that runs from May through October. And that's where the meta sequel comes in. So let's talk about the sequel and let's also talk about like the psychology that comes with embracing tragedy, especially through film. So just like this film, people from Texarkana, as well as all over the world, make the trip to Spring Lake Park every year to watch the original The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And you might be asking yourself, why? (laughs) (laughs) And to be honest, that was something that I kind of was thinking about at first. Uh, Because I thought it was kind of funny. Obviously, like, I don't live in a town where something tragic happened and then a movie was made about it. But after doing some research, I can now see why the people of Texarkana are attracted to this film. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, 
it would be kind of like someone making a film about um, Heidi Allen, and she was a girl that went missing locally, like where Gracie and around where Gracie and I grew up when we were really little. Like she just disappeared, and no one knew what happened to her or who was responsible. And like I can only imagine how outraged the people in my hometown would be, but also I feel like it would be a huge draw for people who love true crime or were connected to her in some way. I And I think that the culture surrounding it would be a little bit different because we're in upstate New York, and I don't know, I've never lived in the South, but I feel like maybe stuff like that is a, a little bit more taboo in southern states or like in those kind of areas that's definitely something i wouldn't know much about my husband is originally from the south and he said that he doesn't think it's more or less taboo but listen everyone's outlook on true crime is different and it and it's different throughout the ages too like i do think that it's safe to say that right now as a society we are more accepting of true crime in general due to podcasts like Serial and My Favorite Murder and docu-series like Making a Murderer and Paradise Lost. Yeah, that's true. That's not to say that murderinos didn't always exist. Like, we've existed for years and years. It's it's not like a recent phenomenon. And I, I think it's just more readily accepted by the community as a whole to be interested in true crime. Like, a lot of people are, like, coming out, so to speak as true crime fans. And I honestly, I think it would be rare for someone to call you weird for falling asleep to forensic files nowadays. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) I think that that is something that maybe would have happened 10 years ago, but not now. Yeah. I mean, it's like you said, so prevalent. I don't know anybody in my close circle of friends who like doesn't love true crime or isn't fascinated. So right. In some way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And I also think that knowledge is power and true crime helps us as humans stay protected from potential predators. Yes. And I think it also helps us find our community. Like, as we all know, there is safety and support in numbers. Mm -hmm. And according to Nicola Davis, researchers at Oxford University say that watching traumatic films boosts feelings of group bonding as well as increasing pain tolerance by upping levels of feel-good pain-killing chemicals produced in the brain. Professor Sophie Scott, group leader of the Speech Communication Neuroscience Group at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, University College London, said it was striking that traumatic films like laughter appear to produce a social bonding effect. Quote, it suggests that it not simply with positive emotions that you have to have this bonding effect. Maybe there is something about a shared emotional experience which is really changing how your endorphins are being taken up and making you feel closer to people, unquote. Oh my god, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, According to the article, The Surprising Reasons We Like Sad Movies, quote, research suggests that watching tragic movies might actually make us feel happier across the board. Huh. Yes, and according to Paul Zak, expert professor and director of the Center of Neuroeconomic Studies, sad films make us feel empathy for others through the release of oxytocin. When we empathize with other people, even fictional ones on screen, our brain releases oxytocin, which engages brain circuits that prompt us to care about others. Exercising empathy makes us better able to connect to the real people around us, says Zach. Like, what the heck? It's amazing. amazing. 
most of the films that were used in these studies were films about the Holocaust, as well as films about people who had disabilities. I don't think any of these events were shown to people who actually experienced something similar themselves. So I dug a little deeper and I found this article for the Huffington Post called Why Bringing Tragedy to Life Through Film is Important. And it's by Marshall Julius. And Julius says, quote, on Patriot's Day, April 15th, April 15th, 2013, a pair of homemade pressure cooker bombs exploded near the finish line of America's annual Boston Marathon, killing three people and injuring almost 300 more. Around the same time as one of the bombers sentencing, which was in 2015, director Peter Berg declared his intention to shoot a movie about the bombing and subsequent manhunt. Local press complained it was much too soon for Hollywood to dramatize an event that the city was still recovering from. Encouraged by meetings with survivors of the attack, though, Berg felt certain that the time was right. Quote, Boston is such a small community, he said. Quote, everybody knows somebody who was affected. It's a sensitive subject. I was really on the fence and kind of reluctant to commit. Then I realized they're going to make a movie anyway. I might as well be in control of it, unquote. Mm. That kind of reminds me of like Charles B. Pierce because he wasn't from Texarkana, but he was from Arkansas. So I think yeah. he was, he kind of had an understanding of the area and about what happened. So Surgeon's Medical Dictionary defines the therapeutic prescription of films as cinema therapy, quote, a form of therapy or self-help that uses movies, particularly videos, as therapeutic tools. Cinema therapy can be a catalyst for healing and growth for those who are open to learning how movies affect people and watching certain films with conscious awareness, unquote. And then Julius ends the article and says that movies are our history lesson. So comparing true crime to horror movies, I'd like to share this quote by Aaron Orby from the New York Times. And in this article entitled Morning Through Horror Movies, and that's morning with a U, Orby talks about how her father was killed by an intruder when the family was in Turkey. Orby's mother turned to romantic comedies for comfort, but Orby was more interested in using horror as therapy, saying, quote, in my own experience, horror movies provided not an example for actions, but an outlet for empathy, a mm. chance to see characters contend with a kind of fear that my own peers could not fathom, unquote. Wow. Yes. So really, true crime and horror have a very similar effect on those looking for some sort of community or comfort. And this, to me, is the reason why the people of Texarkana are so attracted to this crime that happened in their town. Like, simply put, it brings them all together. But <laughs> let's uh, talk about the dumb idiot kid who killed someone <laughs> after seeing the original film. Uh, he obviously took it all the wrong way. <laughs> he did not bond with anybody. Yes. And no. <laughs> um, I also kind of want to mention Mr. Moore, uh, his sister, who was portrayed as the dropout in the film rather than the good kid that she really was. Like, these are the issues that come with the original film. And what's really interesting is that the meta remake deals with them in a very unique way. So Gerald Jedramas, I don't know how to say that stupid idiot's last name. Um, <laughs> I don't care. He's evil. He shot and killed his friend because he wanted to live the life of an outlaw and be noticed. And, you know, he was inspired by the, the town that dreaded sundown. Gross. And 
gross, <laughs> and Moore wanted his sister to be remembered correctly. Now, this is sort of what happens in the remake of the film. Yes. Spencer Treat Clark, who plays Corey, could easily be compared to Gerald something or other, the idiot, while Joshua Leonard, who plays Deputy Foster, could be compared to uh, Pollyanne Moore's brother. Yeah, so, <laughs> okay, Corey is kind of an asshole, but, <laughs> I, like, honestly, but I think here he serves as a really good example of what happens when someone stays in a confined area for their entire life. Like, I get that it gets difficult to figure out what your next step is after you graduate when you live in a tiny area that doesn't really seem to have much going on. But it's not like the townspeople don't know that there's an entire world beyond Texarkana. And that's what's so frustrating about Corey's character to me. He is incredibly juvenile, but at the same time, he takes his own, like, small-town claustrophobia to the extreme by murdering people. And if you want to be rebellious or be remembered by people in your hometown, like, do something incredible with your life instead of, like, oh, I don't know, killing people? <laughs> I mean, it goes without saying that he squandered a really great opportunity to get out of his hometown and never look back. And he says that he wants to be remembered for bringing the Phantom back, but he, but he doesn't want to get caught. So it's really his own ego and uncontrollable shadow self that stand in the way of him actually doing anything worthwhile in his life. The greatest irony to me is that he will never get to leave Texarkana. And, you know, it's like born in Texarkana, buried in Texarkana, just like he says in the film. The whole thing kind of made me think of that quote by Henry Rollins where he says, like, if you hate your parents, the man or the establishment, don't show them up by getting wasted and wrapping your car around a tree. If you really want to rebel against your parents, outlearn them, outlive them, and know more than they do. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's kind of like a testament to that. And he, like I said, is an example of like what happens when you don't want to expand or like move past that kind of hometown mentality that can be super unhealthy for people. Well, and I think that there is psychological proof that kids who don't leave their hometown or they become more like hometown heroes that like stay put or whatever, they're more likely to do drugs. And so the fact that Corey is so obsessed with being like known for something different and like known for something and like staying in this town is like obsessed with being in this town, it kind of like makes sense that he would kind of flip you know yeah he's yeah, never absolutely. he's never known anything else and he never will because he gets killed right and foster the officer is just an older generation of this really like he is a reflection of entitlement and he's angered by the fact that people have forgotten the phantom's last victim and he retaliates by becoming the thing that destroyed his family like he becomes a cop maybe to look for answers but also as a way to retaliate against the town that gave up on finding his grandfather's supposed killer and in this journey he lost sight of maybe what his real goal actually was and by recruiting Corey, 
he had found the perfect way to put the Phantom back on the town's radar without having to accept responsibility for the deaths of people that he'd sworn to protect as an officer. And simultaneously, like, he fed his own ego by doing this. So it's a pattern of behavior that's handed down through the generations, much like patterns of abuse. And if you want to look at it from, like, a current standpoint, sort of politically, this reminds me of what we have going on with, like, neo-Nazism and racism under Trump or, like, the whole internet troll thing that's been going on for years now. Like... They right, but it's to... become a little bit more violent than right, right. because of this, yeah. Yeah, and like they want to cause havoc and feed their own egos and psychopathy, but they want to do it while hidden from the public, like just in case something goes wrong or just in case they get caught. Corey is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's like a good hometown boy who had high hopes with like his col- college scholarship and He's got a squeaky clean record until he starts spending time with Jamie, who is kind of a black sheep in her own right. Like, she seems to have trouble follow her around wherever she goes. But it's not actually Jamie who is the problem. It's Foster. And it's happening in a small town because there's literally nothing else going on. These murders are really the only thing that has shaken up the town for as long as anyone can remember. And it's like the closed-mindedness and fear that drive these people to keep everything hidden and hide their true selves from each other. And this is what makes the Phantom so frightening. And it's what makes racism and bigotry and sexism and neo-Nazism, like all that stuff, it, it becomes so insidious because it could literally be anyone that you know. I just thought of this. What's really interesting is that these killings don't start until Jamie is like decides that she wants to leave the town. Yeah. And yes. she is prevented from leaving because thing keep things keep coming up and she keeps ignoring her acceptance letters and her grandmother's like we're just going to go. We're just going to go. And like when the grandmother like finds out and they like get in the car and they're about to leave like the phantom stops them again and even kills the grandmother who is like trying to get her granddaughter out of this town. It's so strange to me that the grandmother, who is part of, like, the older generation, is the one who is finally, like, okay, like, enough is enough. We're going to leave the town. And then she gets punished for it. Yeah. And, like, Jamie Jamie is obviously the one who lives and, like, gets to leave. But she never really gets to leave because you see, like, the shadow of the phantom following her around. It's like you can't escape the transgressions of like past generations. And when it's so deeply rooted in a community like that, because it's been that way for decades, it is so difficult to change. Yes, exactly. And it's exactly what we've got like going on politically and stuff right now. It's like if we don't start changing it now, it's just going to be harder to uproot all of those like horrible transgressions that have been going on for years and years so it's like a lot to digest when you watch this movie (laughs) it certainly is (laughs) yes holy cats so abby let's get into our final thought i want to hear you talk about the phantom's duality the past and the present yes so this more so the sequel i think than the original you see a lot of duality across the board even down to, like, the movie set itself. So the interesting thing about this film 
is the duality behind all of it, down to the combination of like Texas and Arkansas. And even though there are obvious borders between the states, they both work together to find out who the Phantom is. And the Phantom itself, too, is a representation of duality, like not knowing who has this secret life or identity, basically. Texarkana itself is different in the daytime, but when night falls, the citizens are afraid of who the next victim could be. So that's like a physical manifestation of the light or dark side of humanity. Wow, yeah. I mean, the characters even have a duality as well. Corey and Foster, namely, but like also the police officers and the pastor who sends Jamie the threatening emails. Mm-hmm. It's a small town full of secrets, but there are also people like Nick and Morales and Jamie's grandmother who are good people and they want the best for the citizens of Texarkana. So, like, there's definitely um, a very strong balance across the board. And in the original film, the Phantom goes after teens who sneak away to have sex, which is something common that we see in a lot of slasher movies like this. But it isn't really revealed, like, why he's doing what he's doing, except that he's a sexual sadist. In the remake, it has to do with just revenge. And then, like, if you look at it in the meta way, it has to do with how the times have changed, but not really. (laughs) We see a lot of the same themes pop up in both films, and they run parallel without really intersecting. That's why I think it's, you have to talk about both films. You can't just talk about one or the other. It's so awesome. Oh my God, exactly. So another very cool thing about this is the line between what is real and what has become urban legend. It's unsolved, so that leaves a lot of room for the artistic liberties that we were talking about earlier, but it circles back around to that small town life and what could cause murders like these to happen in the first place and I think a lot of it has to do with the inability to see past your own ego or like try to understand outsiders while on the opposite end of that spectrum Foster who says that he was not born in Texarkana refuses to move on from what happened in his family's past so like he himself is an outsider but he's still like embroiled in this community It's Mm -hmm. so strange. And then, like, to get more into that, there's the discussion of what's passed down through the generations and how it causes divides between the citizens of the town. There's, you know, the younger ones who try to unbury the secrets of the past who are actually killed by the older generations until the mystery is cracked by a woman, which is exactly what the previous film lacked, like the new meta version of this makes up for it in many many ways like the investigation is led by a black texas ranger and a young teenage girl and in my opinion the story moves forward with a lot of momentous force and we come closer to solving the murders than the officers did in the original film maybe because it gives the story a breath of fresh air in the way of providing like new diverse characters who offer different perspectives on the killer yes you know like before you you can really only have the perspective of a white male like you're not gonna get any kind of like diversity or like it's gonna be harder to kind of crack the case because you don't have a lot of other information so i guess all in all 
both these films are amazing because they show how the case has evolved and like moved into a new era while leaving the story open for the viewer to ponder about later on. It shows the steps that we've taken not only in the film, but like how fear can control the way small towns operate while showing how important it is to leave your hometown and come back with an open mind. And it's this weird brew of like trying to move on from the past while still confronting those demons that linger after a town experiences tragedy, which is an important step to healing a lot of what is going on in our country right now, too. It's frightening because there are extremes that people can take. And at the same time, it's comforting because there's always the possibility that we can grow and get away from those places or experiences in our lives where we live or like what we've been through mentally that are dangerous or frightening and you know we can get out of those places that really stunt our growth as people it's such a beautiful two-sided like meta experience like we've said multiple times in this episode but it's so cool to see how it's like reflected on both sides oh i love it so much Wow, Abby, thank you so much for that final thought. That was really great. Yes, of course. I love these movies so much. I could talk about them all day long. <laughs> it's so good. And I had actually never seen the the sequels, so I was like really happy to have finally checked that off my list of horror movies I haven't seen. So yeah, you you guys, if you plan on watching these films, watch them back to back. They're great together. And this this discussion that we had, I think, was really important. So yeah, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Treat yourself to some Good Morning Nancy merch and check out our shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, and t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early, give away patron gifts, and review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies over there too sometimes. So, become a patron, won't you? You can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye!